You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Why don't you go ahead and tell someone the title of my sermon this morning, Discussing Divorce, Part 1. Discussing Divorce. As we've been doing for the past couple of weeks, and as we continue this series, the sermon series called Taboo, where we seek to discuss topics that are not often discussed or talked about in the church, we will be looking at the topic of divorce and remarriage. And as you could probably tell from my sermon title, this is the first part to a two-part discussion on this topic, because as I was doing my research and my study uh, this past week, I found that there's so much truth and so much depth to um, this doctrine, and, and, and that a single sermon cannot contain it all. And so, as, uh, as to not deprive us of, of this, the beauty and the rich grace found in these truths, we'll discuss this topic this week and also next week. But with that said, if you were hoping to discuss other topics, other taboo topics in the church, don't worry. Uh, the Lord willing will be able to discuss those topics at a later date. And if, in the meantime, if, if you have, uh, you're, you're more than welcome. If you have questions or if you want to discuss something with myself or the other elders, please do that uh, before we, we get to this series again. But again, for this morning and the following week, we'll be discussing divorce and the doctrines and the truths revolving around it because it is a taboo topic. And what I've found is that the reason why it's a taboo topic in the church is because divorce is rampant in our society. And as a result, churches have just taken to accept it or grown numb to it, even though God sees divorce as a radical corruption of his will and purposes for marriage. And what I've seen as well are, are, are churches that even condone divorce outside of the biblical parameters around it, or, or even turn a blind eye to the sin of remarrying an unlawfully divorced individual. Hence why it's taboo, because churches act as though it's not sin, as though it's a normal thing. Let's just turn a blind eye to it. Listen, it is sin. As we'll see, God hates divorce, and we cannot normalize what God hates. We cannot be numb to what infuriates the heart of God. So listen, just because the world is doing it, right, and, and find some sort of joy in, in the act of it, it does not mean that the church should stay silent about it. What the world celebrates, the, sh the church should not tolerate. Let's not take our, our cues from Kim Kardashian and Kanye West, right? Let's Let's be biblical people, biblical-minded people about this topic. Now, even for the churches who do stand against divorce and, and do preach the biblical view on this topic, it's, it was interesting to find in my research that even those views somewhat differ in conviction and, and not necessarily in a bad way. It's just interesting to see how even some well-known uh, conservative reform preachers that, uh, that we all look up to can have differing views on this topic. One says divorce is allowed on the grounds of adultery. The other says no divorce at all, right? And the same goes for remarriage. And so I found, and so I found that the differences are not in regards to whether or not God hates divorce. God does. Everyone agrees to that. But whether or not he allows for it. 
And to be honest, I, I, I don't think either view is wrong necessarily. There is sort of a nexus point in which those views combine or those views come together. Yes, yes, we must say to believers, no to divorce at all. Absolutely no divorce. But if, if sin is so grievous that the relationship cannot be reconciled, this is what the Bible says. And so what I want to do for us in, in this next two weeks is lay out a biblical foundation, biblical truths regarding divorce and remarriage, because as we'll see, they are closely tied together. And the way I want to break this down for us is by first establishing a proper perspective on divorce and consequently remind us of how much God views marriage, the purpose and meaning for marriage. The next week, we'll look at the application of divorce, or rather the circumstance in which the Bible permits for divorce and also remarriage. So you'll have to come back next week for part two of this sermon. Now, please see my heart in this church, right? Beyond simply teaching the biblical truths, beyond simply saying what the Bible says, this is for those who are happily married, for those who are looking to get married, and those who are struggling in their marriage. The seriousness, the travesty in which God sees divorce needs to come and rise up in our hearts. Again, we cannot be numb to what God hates. And the sacredness of, and the beauty of marriage needs to be elevated in our minds. We need to protect, we need to guard the marriage that we have, the, the, the relationships that we have. We need to, for those who are married, we need to fight for our marriage because that's a battleground. My hope is that for those who are married or who are going to be married or thinking about marriage, that you would stay married, that the word of divorce would not even cross your mind and not, be, not even be uttered in your lips. Now, in order to get into the biblical view on this topic, I think there's no better teacher than the Lord himself. Jesus Christ, uh, Jesus Christ speaks on this matter in our passage. And, and similar to what we're trying to do for the next two weeks, he's explaining to his disciples, as well as the Pharisees, as well as the crowd that he's speaking to, the biblical grounds for divorce. So let's jump into our sermon. Someone say, jump for me. Our passage takes place during a time where Jesus was teaching in Judea. And he left, it says in our passage, and he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And in verse 2 it says, And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, you have to understand that context is key in this passage. Some of the research that I was doing and some of the preachers I was listening to this past week, they, they totally missed the context of this passage, and so they come to different conclusions about divorce. So please bear with me as I give some, some contextual background to what's happening here. We find Jesus towards the latter part of his earthly ministry. His popularity has grown so much that he's preaching in Judea, and, and everyone is flocking to him, as the passage says. Now, as you know, the Pharisees, who were the religious elites of Jesus' day, of the Jewish society, hated Jesus with a passion. They hated Jesus because his popularity was growing, that everyone was following him, and specifically because he was teaching something contrary to what the Pharisees were teaching. So at this point, they want to trap Jesus, right? They want to get rid of him. And so they figure the question, the best way to approach this is with this question of divorce. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? See, during Jesus' day, 
divorce was an epidemic, similar to our day, really, maybe even more. See, what happened was 20 years prior to Christ, there was a rabbi, a rabbi named Rabbi Hillel, who came onto the scene and, and took from Moses' teachings and, and, and on divorce and extrapolated it to, to, to mean something more. He added some other requirements for divorce, making divorce quite easy for people to do. For example, you can look this up, Rabbi Hillel said to men, and, and by the way, husbands, right, don't try this at home, please, right, don't, don't. This is, I'm just telling you what he said. This is not advice from the Bible, right? He said, Rabbi Hillel said, if your wife burns your dinner, you can divorce her. Any wives feel guilty about that? Like, my wife is not guilty because she never burns my food. Because I cook most of the time. Uh, <laughs> she's laughing back there. Don't worry, I'm not going to get in trouble. Uh, Rabbi Hillel said, if your, wife, if your wife speaks to another man, you can divorce her. He said, he said if your wife lets down her hair, kind of like in those Pantene commercials, right? You can divorce her. She said, he said, if your wife makes a negative comment about your mother, you can divorce her. He also said, listen, let's get this one. If your wife speaks loud enough for your neighbors to hear her, you can divorce her. This is, this, this is what he said, right? And listen, this is, this, is a very, this, is, this one was a popular one. If you found someone more attractive than your wife, then guess what? You can divorce her. And even more spiritually, he tried to put a spiritual twist to this. He said, listen, if your wife is infertile, then you're obligated by God for, to God to divorce her. Now, as you can imagine, Rabbi Halil's teachings were popular among the people because it made divorce so easy. For the smallest thing, you could divorce your wife, write a certificate, and you could move on to someone else, someone that you thought was more attractive, someone that could cook for you, all these things. And people loved this teaching and even practiced it, again, religiously. Can you imagine that? It's like going up to your wife and saying, uh, sorry, dear, you know, I think our neighbor is more attractive than you. Um, so to honor God, I have to go marry her. Again, don't try this at home, husbands, Right? Unless you want to see Jesus sooner, please don't. So divorce was easy in Jesus' day and similar to our day, really. All you have to say is irreconcilable differences, simply meaning you can't get along and a court will grant you a divorce. I mean, as we speak, you can go online, fill out an application, and in five minutes you can train wreck your marriage. That's how little people think of marriage and divorce, not just in Jesus' day, but in our day. If it doesn't work out, you can start again. If you start to hate how your, your, your spouse looks like in, in five years or, or, the, the, or how he, he never puts the seat down on the toilet or, you know, divorce. People treat marriage as if it's like a free trial, right? As if there is no consequence to, to ending a marriage. But as we'll see, there is grave consequences to it. So now this is the common mentality. This is the perspective that the Jewish people had that Jesus was teaching, that he was trying to answer, or that he had to answer this question to, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? The Pharisees were only looking for two outcomes here, really. Remember, this is a trap, right? 
For one thing, they already knew what Jesus' stance was on divorce. If you remember from the Sermon on the Mount, an earlier exploit in Jesus' ministry, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So the Pharisees already knew the answer to this question. They already knew what Jesus was going to say. So either Jesus changes his teachings for the sake of the crowd that he's around or the the people that he's teaching so that the Pharisees could say, but you said this last time, right? And, And therefore discredit him in front of these people. Or, and this is a more sinister reason, Jesus says no to divorce and he's considered an extremist, a hardliner, someone who doesn't permit divorce. And as a result, the people would also turn on him. There was no doubt divorcees in the crowd that he was speaking to. He would, but he would, if he said no to divorce, he would be explicitly calling these people adulterers. Now, in addition to that, remember where Jesus was preaching. Judea. He was the king of Judea, King Herod. The same King Herod who just got John the Baptist beheaded because John called him out for divorcing his wife and marrying his brother's wife instead. So the Pharisees were hoping that King Herod would would take a similar action to Jesus if Jesus said no to divorce. That Jesus' head would be on a silver platter as well. Same thing with John the Baptist. So the Pharisees, this was the Pharisees' trap. Either Jesus was discredited or he was destroyed. Sounds pretty smart, right? I, I sort of, I'm thinking of that, that Star Wars meme, right? It's a trap, right? I just want to tell Jesus, no, don't. But I love what Jesus answers here, right? The, the, the Pharisees think that they got Jesus in this trap, but Jesus is, you know, a million steps ahead. He says, what did Moses command you in verse 3? What did Moses command you? Now, you have to understand the weight of this, the genius of this. This is great. Jesus didn't ask what did the rabbis command you? Or what did Rabbi Hillel command you? Or, or what does the comment or the, the, the opinion of, of society or the preference of society say about divorce? No, Jesus bypasses all of that. And he asks, what did Moses command you in the holy inspired word of God, the Bible? He gets beyond what people says or what man says about this divorce or what spiritual leaders say about divorce or what culture says about divorce. He says, what did God say about divorce? The creator of marriage, the, the, the author of love, of relationships, the one who ordained and constituted marriage. What did God say about divorce? Jesus goes to the highest authority on the topic. And I love how the Pharisees answered to this, right? They said in verse 4, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and and to send her away. Well, uh, Moses said it was okay, so that's why we're doing it. The Pharisees are on the defense now, right? They're they're trying to justify what they believe about divorce because if Moses said it was okay and Rabbi Halil's teachings are just an extension of Moses' teachings, then, then it's okay, right? But the Pharisees knew exactly what Jesus was getting at, and that is God hates divorce. He hates it with a passion. He hates it with great indignation, so much so that he says in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garments with violence. Meaning the only thing that that man who divorces his wife will experience is his wrath, the wrath of God. 
And if that wasn't clear enough, the Septuagint asked, one of the translations add to this verse, Kisane Salah Amar Yahweh, meaning, I hate divorce, says the Lord. Clear as day. So the Pharisees knew that Jesus was appealing directly to the word of God, not just some rabbi's teachings on the matter. And so now Jesus turns the table again on the Pharisees. He says, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Meaning because you lust after someone that's not your wife or not your husband, because you abuse your spouse, because you are unfaithful, because you are adulterous, because you turn your back on God's will and purposes for marriage, because you are sinners to the core, to their very hardened heart, Moses gave you this exception. And what the Pharisees failed to understand is that exception was not permission. In fact, they had it backwards. They thought that the, the, they practiced this exception as a way to excuse their unfaithfulness, when in reality, that exception was to protect the one who was, who was faithful, the spouse that, was, that wasn't cheating, that wasn't committing adultery. But we'll talk more about that next week. What follows is Jesus reminding the Pharisees and the people through Scripture, why exactly God hates divorce and loves marriage. He says in verse 6, From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. To shut, to shut down any other arguments from the Pharisees, Jesus goes all the way back to the beginning before the Mosaic law, before the exception that Moses gave to the people. He goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, the marriage of the first human couple, Adam and Eve, and what God proclaims about their union. Now, just from what, what, what Jesus says here, what God says in Genesis, we can understand why he loves marriage. Why marriage is so sacred and, and why he hates divorce with a passion. So let's break this down for us. In, in, in verse 6, Jesus says again, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. This is not just stating a fact. This is displaying a design. God's design for marriage is a covenantal relationship between one man and one woman. That is consecrated by God uh, for life. Now, this is also saying that there is no provision for multiple partners, for polygamy. It wasn't Adam and Eve and Jane, just in case it doesn't work, work out with Eve. God's design for marriage is faithful, a faithful union between one man and one woman till death do us part, covenantal relationship between the two, between husband and wife. So the reason why God hates divorce is because divorce propagates what is sinful. Divorce propagates what is sinful. At the heart of unlawful divorce is a desire to be with someone else, someone more attractive, someone more charismatic maybe, maybe someone who has more money, someone more kind, someone more pleasant to live with, and, someone, uh, and so what divorce allows is for you to leave your spouse in order to be with someone else. And that's the reality of it. In 2015, there was a study done to see what was the top reasons for divorce in Canada. And only second to money is infidelity. The husband cheats, the wife cheats, and they get, they get a divorce so that they can be with other people. Or they're not satisfied in their, in their marriage, in, in bed, or in, in how they feel about their spouse, so they get a divorce in order to be with someone else. And according to God, that, that desire to find someone better is not a legitimate reason for divorce. And anyone who does so is an adulterer. 
And listen, unless you thought that you can only become an adulterer if if you had sexual relations with someone who is not your spouse. Remember what Jesus himself said. Even if you look at a woman and, and lust for her in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Because that's where it starts. She's pretty. No, well, well, he has more hair. Well, she makes me feel accepted. Well, he treats me nicer and kinder. And sooner or later, you're lusting after someone that's not your spouse. So husbands and wives, be careful where you allow your heart to wander because you let it wander enough, you will stumble into divorce. God hates divorce because it propagates what is sinful. It enables people to pursue their sinful desire at at the cost of breaking their most sacred vows. God designed marriage to be between one man and one woman for a lifetime, and anything outside of that is sin, it's disobedience, it's direct rebellion against God's design and will for marriage. And of course, we see this in our, our, our culture today, in our society today. You know, we, we discussed the other week about the world's obsession with gender and sexual identity. But if you look back on the history of Western society, that change in morality only began when divorce was normalized. When society said, no, marriage isn't, it, it isn't exclusive. Marriage isn't just between one man and one woman. You can have multiple marriages and multiple divorces and, and marry whoever you want. And for the women, we'll even give you incentive if you don't marry the, the, the father of your children. And soon that one compromise led to further moral decay. Marriage isn't just between one man and one woman. It can be with two men or, or two women now or with multiple spouses. And now in, 22, in 2022, you have professors in universities advocating for pedophilia, for lowering the age for the the consent of marriage, because love is love, because love wins, because love should have no boundaries, right? This is why God hates divorce, because it propagates sin. It opens the door to further disobedience and a redefining of marriage and relationships and even love. Christ reminds the adulterers that that, that marriage is a, a lifetime commitment between one man and one woman as decreed by God from the very beginning of creation. And of course, Jesus says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Verse 8, And the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. This portion from Genesis is speaking about the strength of the union made between husband and wife. It is a union that requires a severance of of former familial ties in order to be bound to your spouse and create a new family. That's what God means when he says that a man leaves father and mother behind to hold fast to his wife. In some translations, the word faster is replaced with cleave to his wife, literally meaning to glue together, to glue things together. The cleaving together depicts a permanent union between husband and wife. They are, no longer, they are no longer individuals. They are no longer uh, one, or, or sorry, two individual people. They have become one. As Jesus says, they are no longer two, but one flesh. So marriage doesn't have a trial period or an expiration date. Because the idea is that the husband and wife become one flesh, glued together, inseparable. So you can imagine why divorce does so much damage to individuals. 
Because it's like sticking two pieces of paper together with glue, and once that glue dries, trying to separate those pieces of paper together, hoping that nothing tears. Marriage is meant to depict a permanence that only death can separate. Now, it's also for this reason that marriage is set apart, holy, sacred. There is no other kind of human relationship that has this kind of bond. Even a relationship between a parent and a child, again, the passage says, can be severed. But the union in marriage is for life. That's why it's set apart, holy, sacred. Interestingly enough, the, the, the Jewish word for the process of marriage or the ceremony of marriage is called kiddushin, which literally means sanctification or consecration, something that is set apart, made sacred, made holy. And that's what happens when two people become one. They are being sanctified, set apart for one another. They become exclusively each other's. Again, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 4, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. It's an exclusivity for both husband and wife to have each other. And it's not just the body, it's the heart, it's the mind as well. Husbands and wives become one in flesh and are exclusive to one another, set apart for one another. And this is why God hates divorce. Because divorce profanes what is sacred. Divorce profanes what is sacred. Divorce takes what is holy and set apart and severs it in two. It makes what is meant to be an exclusive relationship between husband and wife and allows for others, other people to be a part of it. And worst of all, it spits on what is holy in the eyes of God. See, in the Old Testament, the reason for sanctifying something or consecrating something was in order to dedicate it to the Lord, to God. And that's what marriage is. It's an exclusive relationship between one man and one woman made holy by God. Hence why any marriage ceremony finds its roots in some religious institution because weddings are, are meant to invoke the blessing of God. It was never meant to, to, to be dispensed by the state or the government. It's not a, a marriage license or a marriage contract that legitimizes a marriage. It's God himself sanctifying and blessing and setting it apart. And so when divorce takes place, it's, it's, it's the couple profaning, desecrating what God himself declares to be holy. We see God explicitly calling this out in scripture, this, this sin. He's, look at Malachi chapter 2 again. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 13. The people were wondering why God is not accepting their, their offerings of worship, their sacrifices at the altar. And God says in verse 13, You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? God says that in the wedding ceremony that he himself bore witness to, and that he himself consecrated and sealed with his own Spirit, that's meant to be sacred, a, a, a sacred union between husband and wife, you tore that apart. 
A union that God himself was witness to, meaning affirmed and approved of and made holy by his spirit. People were abandoning and were unfaithful to. And the people were wondering, well, why wasn't God accepting our, our worship or our sacrifices or offerings? Because how dare you offer something to God in worship when your marriage, which was also supposed to be an offering to God, a holy offering to God, you abandoned and forsook and were unfaithful to. And what follows that passage is God again exclaiming, I hate divorce. I hate this very thing that makes what is supposed to be holy and set apart for me into something that is common and debased. Listen, divorce makes a sacrilege of what God considers sacred and therefore should not be taken lightly. And if it's not clear to you yet how much God seriously hates divorce, in the Old Testament, the punishment of causing a divorce or committing adultery through divorce is death. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, but, the, uh, but both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Now compare that to the punishment of, of premarital sex, for example, or, or fornication. The Old Testament only prescribes scourging, being whipped as a punishment for having sex outside of marriage. But to break up a marriage, to, to, to desecrate something sacred and holy to God between a man and his wife, God calls for death. That's how much he takes this seriously. That's how much he hates the defilement of what is holy and sacred to him. And again, what God takes seriously, we cannot take, we cannot ever take lightly. Divorce profanes what is sacred. So after Jesus quotes Genesis, he adds on to the very end here. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus makes sure to, to clarify that marriage is a work of God. That as mentioned, it's God who affirms, it's God who consecrates, it's God, it's God who joins the husband and wife together, it's God who, who brings people together in union. Marriage is God's work. And, and to be clear, that's all marriages. Whether it's a Christian marriage, whether it's a Muslim marriage, whether it's a Buddhist marriage, whether it's a Sikh marriage, every marriage between one man and one woman is a work of God, holy and consecrated by God. And that's because marriage is part of God's common grace for all of humanity. From sinner to saint, from believer to unbeliever, similar to how God causes the sun to both shine on the good and the evil, on the righteous and the reprobate, God also works together the union of bride and groom from all walks of life. A good question to ask is why? Why is marriage a common grace? Because God's work of marriage is one of the ways in which he illustrates his salvific work to humanity. His work to save sinners and prepare for his son, a bride, the church. That's why it's common grace. Because through marriage, God wants everyone to know from every tribe and tongue the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 to 32, he says in verse 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Like Jesus, he's appealing to Genesis on the talk about marriage. And he says in verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. 
That sacred and exclusive covenantal union between husband and wife is meant to depict the covenantal love and relationship that Christ has with his bride, the church, with those who are believers. Marriage is meant to depict a love that is never broken, is always faithful, always kind, always enduring, despite the hardships, because that is the kind of love that Jesus has for us. And because Jesus will never divorce his bride. That is what marriage is to illustrate as well. Marriage is a way in which God communicates even to sinners of his everlasting covenantal love as shown to us through his son, Jesus Christ. And now this is ultimately why God hates divorce. With so much passion. Because divorce pillages salvation. Divorce pillages salvation. Divorce robs marriage of that sweet, sweet message of the gospel. Instead of depicting a faithful and enduring and all-encompassing, unconditional love, the divorce depicts a compromised, unfaithful, shifting love, one that cannot be trusted. So what was meant to illustrate the perfect love in which God loved us with, divorce depicts an imperfect love. It makes a standard of love Divorce. And listen, this is why, by the way, divorce has such an impact on kids. Because their parents, because their parents' marriage is meant to be their first exposure to what real and genuine love is supposed to be. And when that gets severed, it teaches kids that love is temporary, that love is not enduring, that love is not faithful, that you can easily give it up if you somehow fall out of love or you're not interested anymore. And marriage is, again, that first illustration, even for the kids of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's meant to depict this, this perfect, sacrificial love that Christ demonstrates for us. Divorce tarnishes the message of the gospel. It robs couples and families of getting, to, getting a glimpse of that perfect kind of love, that perfect kind of love from Christ. A love that sticks around, that is unchanging, that is kind, that is faithful and true, that sacrifices. Marriage is meant, meant to point us to the love of Christ. Again, this is why God hates divorce. Divorce propagates what is sinful. It enables adultery. It enables individuals to be unfaithful to their spouse. Divorce profanes what is sacred. It spits on what God himself has consecrated and makes holy. And divorce pillages salvation. It robs marriage of the sweet message of the gospel. So now a good question to maybe ask at this point is, why does divorce happen? Let me answer this as we close this morning. Let's go back to the beginning again. Let's go back to Genesis, back to the start the first married couple, Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter 3, after they disobey God, eating after they eat from the fruit that they were not supposed to, God pronounces a curse over them as a result of their sin, consequences to their disobedience. It says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. 
In pain you shall bring forth children. Then he says this, listen to this. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. This is a curse. In some translations it says, and you will desire to control your husband, and he will rule over you. What was meant to be a partnership, a loving partnership between a man and a woman in holy matrimony, sin put a wedge right in between. Sin put husband and wives at odds with each other. Where the wife was meant to lovingly desire after her husband to be his helper, to be his support, sin now makes it so that she desires to control him instead. Where the husband was meant to lead his wife with love and gentleness and seek what is best for her, sin makes it so that man desires to rule instead. And so this desire to control and this desire to rule are at odds with each other. Conflict, all because of sin. Sin, whether it's, it's pride, whether it's selfishness or unforgiveness or a lack of kindness or gentleness, that's what sets couples against each other and eventually destroys marriages. It's not financial issues or physical issues that destroy marriages, it's a spiritual issue. And so the solution to any struggling marriage is not more money or changing bad habits or having more sex or having kids. The solution to a thriving and fruitful marriage is to deal with sin. And the Bible says there is only one way to deal with sin. It's to nail it to the cross of Jesus Christ. It's through Jesus Christ himself. The Bible says, listen, we are sinners and there's nothing that we can do to change that. The only way to save ourselves, not just our marriage, to save us from the wrath of God is through the finished work of Jesus Christ. God sent his son so that he would die for our sins, so that he would take our death so that we could have life, so that we could have freedom from sin, whether it's sin individually or sin in our marriages. So married couples who, 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 who are or maybe going through a rough patch. Listen, if you want to work on your marriage, if you want to deal with it, if, if you want to save your marriage, you need to deal with the sin in your heart. Not your wife's sin, not your husband's sin. Let's start with your own heart first. You need to deal with your sinful heart. That's how real and lasting change takes place. And you can only deal with that through Jesus Christ. Again, our church is called Plus Life, right? That plus is a a symbol that we believe our vertical relationship with God must be fixed first before we can even pursue fixing our horizontal relationships with others. Listen, again, the way to a lasting fruitful marriage is dealing with the sin in our hearts. And again, the only, way, the, the only way that we can deal with that sin is through Christ. It's recognizing that you are a sinner, that you need help, and that only Jesus can help you, that only Jesus can save you from your sin, from God's wrath. You know, other faiths said that you, other faiths, other religions say that you have to work for it. 
Now, you have to do good things, and you have to turn X amount of services, or you have to say X amount of prayers. But God is very clear in his word that it's only through faith, by faith, and God's grace can we be rid of the sin in our lives. Faith meaning, you know, it's us throwing ourselves at the mercies of God and saying to God, God, I'm a sinner. I cannot save myself. I need your help. That's faith. So those who are single or those who are getting married, let this sermon be a reminder to not take marriage lightly because the vows that you make on your wedding day, God will hold you to it to your very dying breath. God hates divorce. And what God hates, we should hate as well. Those who are married, I call you to fight for your marriage. Fight for your spouse. Don't, don't let, again, the, the, the words of divorce even cross your lips or even cross your heart. Fight for your marriage, and not just your marriage, but also what marriage is meant to be, what it's meant to depict the gospel of Jesus Christ. And church, as a church family, I pray that we would be a community that fights for the marriages in our community, that walks and surrounds families who are going through rough patches, Listen, just, just a testimony from my own self, right? Like my, my marriage with my wife is not perfect. There have been many times where, where, where we've argued and fought. And listen, the, I'm telling you, the, the thing that has, has helped our marriage a lot is by having the elders and their wives come and surround us and support us in our times of difficulty, in our rough patches. Because we need each other. We need the church to build each other up in our marriages. Church, fight for your marriage. Fight, fight for the marriages in our community. Fight for the future marriages to come. Again, fight for the gospel of Jesus Christ that marriages are meant to depict. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we just humble ourselves before your holy throne. And God, wherever we have disregarded or debased or thought little, belittled, Lord God, this, the holy union of marriage, I pray that you would forgive us. I pray that you would convict our hearts. That God, if we have desecrated what you, decla what you declare holy, I pray, oh God, by the mercies, by your infinite mercies, that you would cleanse us and wash us, oh Lord. I pray that we would have a high view, a high regard and honor, Lord God, for what you declare is holy. And I pray, oh God, for relationships in this room, for those who are listening to the sermon the marriages, oh God, that are on rocky shores. That God, you would remind them by we would remind them by your spirit their vows, Lord. 
the vows that they have declared to one another before witnesses and before you, oh God, that you are witness to. That the husband would love the wife of his youth. That the wife would love and adore the husband that she married. That God, any marriages, Lord God, that the, the devil, that sin, that the world has put a wedge into, that God, in Jesus' name, you would start to heal. That you would start to restore. By your mercies, oh Lord, you would bring once again, unite once again, husband and wife. Lord, I pray for those who are struggling with sin, for those who are who are stumbling, Lord God, in the lust of their hearts, who in unfaithfulness. Not even, to just, not even to a spouse, Lord God, but to you. I pray that you'd bring the full weight of sin upon their hearts. That you remind them, O oh Lord, the need of a Savior, of your Son who came to die for our sins, to die the death that we should have died, to pay for the sins that we should have paid for, who died so that we might have healing and restoration, who died so that our marriages might be sustained and restored and healed. I pray, oh God, that you dispense the gift of faith to those who need it. Lord, I pray that for your glory, for the propagation of your gospel, that the marriages of blessed life would stand stand united would be filled with love and bound and sealed by your spirit that we would be a witness and a testimony of your unfailing love we pray these things in Jesus thanks for listening we hope that you were blessed by the sermon today if you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.